Thanks for joining us here on the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Eric Roges, and I'm the executive pastor here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're starting to approach the end of our series, Masterclass. As we open scripture, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, we'll hear about the days leading up to the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. Jesus is betrayed, accused, arrested, tried, beaten, disowned, and condemned to death. But this was all according to plan, and nothing happened that Jesus did not foresee and willingly accept for our sake. And even in the mistreatment, Jesus remained King of the kingdom of God, Lord of all. Let's hear more about Jesus' last days together. All right, well, I got so excited about talking about Riverside and being there next week and making sure that you know that you can't leave until you help us pack up. Uh, that I forgot to talk about the connect card at the bottom of your worship guide. So if you want to get your worship guide out on the front, you can uh, some, take some notes here in just a second. But if you have a prayer request or if you're a guest and uh, would like to let us know if you feel comfortable letting us know that you were here, uh, we'd love for you to, to fill that out and drop it in the offering later uh, and share a prayer request with us. Uh, we'd, love for, we'd love to join you in praying for or celebrating uh, whatever God's doing and the needs that you have. Uh, so you can drop that in the offering later uh, in the service. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab, uh, grab them. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have a couple that are in the back, and you, we, we'd love for you to have one. Take that with you uh, as you leave today. If you, if you want to go grab one of those, we'd love for that to be a gift for you. We're in Mark, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. That's uh, the first part of the New Testament. Uh, and the book of Mark, chapter 14, in a series called uh, Masterclass, where we've been studying the life of Jesus and his teachings and his miracles and his interactions with other pe- with people as he moves through the countryside there uh, in, in, Ju- in Jerusalem and Galilee and all these different places. And, and we're asking the Lord to transform our hearts as we study him, that our actions and our attitudes would look more and more like him and we would reflect who Jesus is. And uh, Mark chapter 11, which we studied a couple weeks ago, uh, Jesus makes the triumphal entry. He comes into the city of Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday, and he enters the city with shouts of Hosanna in the highest. The crowds line the street. It's, the, it's called the triumphal entry because it's him coming in, the king into his kingdom. And those same people that shouted Hosanna in the highest in just a few days from that moment would shout crucify him. And in chapter 14, where we're going to be this morning, we're really entering the climax of this gospel story of the passion, those days between him coming in on Palm Sunday and the the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection on Sunday, on the following Sunday. This is the Passion Week, and we're really hitting the climax of the gospel story in the 72 verses that are Mark chapter 14. And it reads, when you you see what's happening, it's kind of like uh, what summer blockbusters are made of. Right? You, 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 it's close to the end of the week. Everything kind of draws near to the time where Jesus is coming to complete all of what he came to do. The three years of ministry that he's, he's been working through, it all culminates in what's happening around this week. And he's kind of brought all the people that are most com- close to him and that, that he loves the most near to him. And while on the outside, there's these plots to kill him quietly on the inside. By the end of the week, they're going, everybody that's with him is going to betray him. They're going to reject him and they're going to abandon him. But Jesus, the hero of our story, the hero of this passion story, remains steadfast and faithful in the midst of great suffering and sorrow. And that's what we're going to see today in Mark chapter 14. But let's pray before we jump into that. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. 
And we thank you for your provision, God, the way that we've been able to see that so clearly. God, I know in my own life and then in the life of our, our church and the life of Rolling Hills Columbia and the provision that you've made for this building for us and then the provision to go back to Riverside and we look forward to the provision of a permanent location in the future. And as we reminded of the provision, we're reminded right now of the provision that you make for us to have a relationship with you and how we see that plan unfolding even more in depth here in Mark chapter 14. As you have your way, and you are sovereignly in control of everything that happens. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. So if you have your worship guide, you, we're going to jump through, we'll kind of walk through all of these. And it says right here at the beginning, in the beginning of chapter 14, the Pharisees are huddled together. And they're outside, just kind of, they're, they're scheming on the outside, looking in. And verse one, it says, then the Passover feast and the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, the people may riot. And so on the outside, they're, they're scheming to kill him. And then right inside of this, we didn't really say this a second ago, inside of this, the, this, the story that's the, uh, what summer blockbusters are made of, there is this beautiful scene that really stands in stark contrast to what we just read of these people scheming against him. And what we'll see on the other side as the disciples kind of all fall apart, where Jesus is honored with the selfless devotion and extravagant love of Mary. If you ever worship God, it was the first note there. Jesus is honored by the selfless love, selfless devotion and extravagant love of Mary. If you look in verse nine, verse three, it says this, that while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and pulled the per poured the perfume on his head. And some who were present were saying indignantly, to one another, why waste, why, what a waste of perfume. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. But in verse six, it says, leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could do. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the word, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This lady, this lady named Mary is there, and you see that it's Mary and other gospel accounts. And it's the same Mary that, it, that sits at Jesus's feet and listens to Jesus teach when Martha, her sister, her sister is running around working her fingers to the bone. And we see that story is in, in, Luke, in Luke's gospel. And Jesus commends Mary in that story that she's done what is right. She has chosen the better thing. And here again, she has chosen what was right. She has chosen the better thing, right? And it, what she does stands in contrast, again, to the plots that are being made to, Jesus, to take Jesus' life by the Pharisees and what these other knuckleheads are going to do and the disciples are going to do that are even in that room right now in the, following, in, in the verses that following as they kind of fumble the ball as they lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. And Mary in front of everyone, again, in contra stark contrast, does what is cost her great both financially and socially by taking this jar of this sweet smelling oil and she breaks the jar and pours it on Jesus, saving none of it. 
And you essential oil folks in the room are kind of squirming because you know how expensive this stuff is. And you're like, that's really, I, mean, I kind of agree with, with Judas. Why'd she waste all that, right? That was funny. Thank you for one person who laughed. So she pours the whole contents out on Jesus' head and his feet, and she clearly expresses to Jesus and to all those that are around how deeply she loves him and his, her devotion to him. And truly, in this gospel story, in the, in the, the last days of Jesus' life, she's really, only, she's really one of the only individuals who gets what's happening. He says that from that time on, whenever the gospel is declared, she, what she has done will be declared and preached in honor of her. And as for us, what it reminds us of is when she gives this, this devotion and this extravagant love, pouring out all of it, wasting none of it, pouring all of it on Jesus's feet and on his head. It reminds us that true followers of Jesus will not hesitate to worship him with great love, even when it requires great cost and great sacrifice. What she does is extreme. And, and honestly, your, our friends, your, your friends, my friends, when they see us do something like this, they would counsel us against making such an extravagant, such an extreme move, right? We would say, hey, listen, it, it's perfectly fine to give a little bit to Jesus, but to pour all of it out, you really could have held on to some of that. But she broke the jar. It, the jar was completely useless. Everything was poured out on Jesus. And I love the way that J.C. Ryle, pastor, says this. He says, once we understand the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for us, we will never think anything too good or too costly or too great to give to Jesus. We will rather feel as the psalmist felt, what shall we return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? We will, feel waste, we will fear wasting our time and our talents and our money and our affections on the things of this world. We will not be afraid of wasting them on our Savior. So Mary's extravagant display of love stands again in contrast of what happened before and what's going to happen after. And it's the reminder that those who follow Jesus, true followers of Jesus, do not hesitate to pour out their love no matter what it costs, no matter how great the cost. But it stands in that contrast as to what happens next as Jesus is betrayed, if you have your worship guide there, as Jesus is betrayed, abandoned, and rejected by, by the disciples that he loved. Jesus is betrayed and abandoned and rejected by the disciples that he loves. We're going to take this quick flyover of the chapter here and stop at a couple different points just to point out some significant points for us. But immediately following Mary's display of love and giving all to Jesus, it says in verse 10 that Judas leaves the building and he goes and he figures out a way. He's, he makes an agreement with the chief priest and takes 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. While one is giving everything up in an expression of love, he's taking 30 pieces of silver to give Jesus up to the chief priest. And so Judas is looking for an opportunity from that moment on to, to hand Jesus over to the chief priest. In verse 12 through 26, it comes to the Passover meal that he shares with the disciples. Judas is in the room. He's back with them. He's in the room. And Jesus sends a couple of the disciples beforehand to prepare the place. And he gives them instructions on how they'll find out where to go. And it's pretty interesting. We'll talk about it in just a second of how he knows exactly where it's going to happen. And during the Passover meal, as they get to the room, they're dining together and Jesus lets all of them know that one among them is going to betray him. 
He knows, he knows what's going to happen before it happens, but he's startled. They, they're startled and they question who, who might be the one who's going to do that. But at the end of the meal, they leave the place and they head to the garden of Gethsemane. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives where Jesus and the disciples were last week. And he spent a little bit of time with some of the disciples there on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. And, and there on their way to, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stops and tells the disciples bad news. We pick up in 27, it says this, Jesus tells them, and you will fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So he sees, he, he tells them that this bad news that all of them, all of them are going to fall away. All of them are going are to leave him. And he says to them, you're, you're going to fall. You're going to do these things. But even though he knew that they would abandon him, listen, even though he knew that they would abandon him, right here in this passage, in verse 28, he's going to let them know that even though they're going to abandon him, he never intends to leave them alone. Verse 28, it says, but after, he, after I am risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Listen, they're going to abandon him. He tells them, you're going to leave me. You're going you're gonna to go by the wayside and, and, and you're going to run away when, when things get bad. But I'm going to tell you, when I'm risen from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. I'm not abandoning you and I'll meet you there. And we fast forward to the end of the, end of the story. We know that that actually happens. Jesus visits them in Galilee and continue just one of these things that, that, uh, that just a reminder for us is in, in, in the hours next after they go into the garden or after he's abandoned, the next several hours of what Jesus goes through are some of the most painful hours, the most agonizing hours that Jesus has ever experienced. And Jesus will do the rest of what he does alone. Because the ones that, he, that he's poured countless hours of time and energy into are going to abandon him. And what I want us to recognize is this truth this morning that some of us truly need to hear. Is that there are moments in our lives when we feel, feel so lonely and depressed. When we feel misunderstood and abandoned by the people that we love. When, and, and I hope that this, even in the slightest bit, this might encourage you that, that Christ knows what it means to be lonely, to be left alone, to feel that no one else, to know the feeling and that no one else in the world knows what you're experiencing. Christ knows that feeling. And the truth is, no matter how lonely you feel, that Jesus, you're, you're never alone because Christ is always with you. You've never been alone. He hears you. He's near to you. He hears you when you cry and he draws near to bring comfort, to make his presence known to us. Jesus knows what it means to be lonely. He's going to experience loneliness like we will never experience in the moments after this, as he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. Picking up verse 29, Peter, my favorite, he says, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus looking Peter straight in the eye, he says to them, he says today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, he kind of just brings it all in, right? Now I'm never going to fall away. No, no, today, actually before the end of the night, really before the rooster crows twice you're going to abandon me. You're going to reject me today. Three times you're going to disown me. But Peter insists, insists emphatically, even though, or even if I have to die with you, I will, I will never disown you. And the others said the same. 
I think Peter gets a pretty bad rap in this, in this particular story because we most of the time think that Peter's the only one that says it, but it says it right there, that the other ones say the same thing, right? All of them say that they're never going to fall away, that we, we'd rather die than disown you. But Jesus does tell Peter the mouthpiece here, the fact that he's going to abandon him. And even more that he's going to disown him and reject him. And, in, and then in verse 32, they arrive at Gethsemane and Jesus tells all the disciples to remain where they are. And he, he invites the inner circle. That's James and John and Peter. That's kind of the three that he's poured the most time and energy to. And he invites them to come a little further with him into the garden of Gethsemane. And I, I think this is significant. I don't know that it'll encourage you as much as it encouraged me this week, but I, I think that there's something significant about this that Jesus knows exactly who they are. He knows who James and John and Peter are. He knows that they're about to fall away, that they're gonna fail. And yet he just declared to Peter, he's going to, he's gonna disown him by, by the time the rooster crows twice. And yet as he enters the garden of Gethsemane in some of the most painful hours that Jesus will experience on the face of the earth in that garden, Jesus invites those three to join him. That Jesus knows you and I better than we know ourselves. And the reality is that we, just like these guys, are gonna fail, we're gonna fumble in various ways, we're gonna disown, we're not gonna live up to what we think that we should, but in God's grace, in Jesus' grace and mercy, he invites them to continue to be with him. Jesus knows you inside and out better than you know yourself. He knows that, he knows that you're not perfect, but he doesn't stop inviting you to draw near. He doesn't stop inviting you to participate in what he's doing in your life and the lives of those that are around you. Now, Peter, along with James and John, they drop the ball in the garden again. It says, it says that Jesus goes a little bit further. He just tells these guys, hey, stay here, stay awake and pray while I go a little bit further and pray. And Jesus goes a little bit further. And, and again, it's the, some of the greatest agony of all of his time on earth as he's, as he's just moments from laying down his life as it races closer and closer. And three times Jesus goes off and prays and comes back and these three knuckleheads have fallen asleep. And I got a little bit of grace for some, some fellows that can't stay awake in the middle of the night, right? Because I mean, like I can barely keep my eyes open past eight o'clock. So I, there's a little bit of grace for this. But, but the reality is that Peter and James and John are just minutes from declaring that they would do whatever, even die before they abandon Jesus. And they can't even stay awake for the minutes that he walks off to pray and comes back. It's agonizing. It's a reality for them. It's a reality for us. But that's not the end of the agony for Jesus because here comes Judas into the garden and he betrays Jesus with a kiss and he hands, over the, he hands Jesus over to the chief priest. And it says that all of the followers scatter and they take off and they leave him and they, they, all of them that, that, have, that he's poured into and they leave him with those men that have opposed him from the very beginning, they abandon him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and these guards that have come with him, they rush Jesus off to this bogus trial in the middle of the night. It's not even sanctioned. They should, it's not even allowed what they've done is it breaking the law, what they're saying that he's done, they're actually doing in this trial that they have. But through it all, as they have these people come and testify against him and lie, and they can't even keep their stories straight, he never defends himself. 
Peter, who follows from a distance, is warming his hands at the fire in the courtyard outside of where Jesus is on trial. And three different times, somebody identifies him, thinking that he was with this Jesus who's on trial. And three different times, in increasing excitement, he says, I don't even know the man that you're talking about. And in that final rejection, he hears the rooster crow. And he remembers what Jesus says and his eyes are filled with sorrow and repentance. Here's the last thing that I want us to see before we move on to the next point. The reality is that we have to see ourselves in this passage from the proper perspective. Because most of the times the way we see ourselves in these passages is that we wanna be the hero and the reality is that you and I are not the hero of this passage. We're not Jesus. There's only one of him. There's only one that's perfect. We're the rest of the guys. We're the Pharisees. We're, we're the disciples. We're Peter. We're, we're, we're these guys who abandon and reject and leave and betray Jesus in various ways. We've all done it. And we've, we've done it in the past. And in various ways, we're going to continue to do it because none of us are perfect, but we're the ones that left him, not him le- leaving us. We're the ones that rejected. But this is the very reason that he came. It's the very reason that he came to rescue and restore and redeem those who could not do it themselves, who couldn't hold it together on their own. And that's why it's so important. What's next is that Jesus was faithful through the great suffering to love to a loving and sovereign father. So important that Jesus was faithful through great suffering to a loving and sovereign father because we are the people that abandoned him. In 1906, Albert Switzer published a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in the book, he claims that this is the point, chapter 14 is the point where Jesus, this this historical man, everything kind of got out of whack for him where everything kind of snowballed and it got out of whack and he couldn't handle it anymore. It got too big for him. And what happens on the other end is that he loses control and eventually it leads to his death on the cross. That's what Switzer says. That's how he, he assesses what happens in, in the story of Jesus. He doesn't claim that he didn't exist. He just claims that he was a man. And at some point, everything got out of control and he couldn't save himself. But the reality is that is categorically untrue. And if you just take another flyover of this chapter, what's happening in chapter 14 is Jesus's victory march. This is the victory march to his, to his death and subsequent resurrection on a, a Roman cross and resurrection from a tomb. This is where he's declaring his victory. It's not that he lost control, that he was defeated in this moment. Truly, this is the moment where he declares victory over sin and death. This is the very reason why he came. Every step in the march that Jesus makes from, from Gethsemane to Calvary was set before him. And he was in complete control of even the greatest of the suffering. He faithfully followed the sovereign plan of the Father, even though it cost him everything. Again, the flyover truths us to be true. If you go back to, to verse one, these, these Pharisees are standing on the outside scheming and they say they're not going to do it while Passover's happening because the people will riot if they do that. But what happens? They weren't in control of when Jesus was going to be crucified. Jesus was crucified during Passover because that's when God predestined it to happen. 
That's when God laid it out before, before time began that this is the moment that he would be crucified for the sins of the world. And these men that they're scheming on the outside, they couldn't even make it happen with their, with their schemes. God was in control of that. Verse 13, in the Passover meal, he sends the disciples to set up. In verse 13, it says they go, he tells them to go into the city and, and they're going to see a man carrying a, a jar of water and he'll meet you there and to follow that man and to say to the owner of the house that that man enters, that the teacher asks, where is my guest room where, am I, where I may eat the Passover with the disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs and furnished and ready, make preparations there. And the disciples left and they found it in the city just as he had said it was. That doesn't sound like a man who's out of control. It sounds like a man who knows exactly what's happening. And when he sits down at, a, at the Passover meal with the disciples and he lays out what's gonna happen, he tells them, he says that this is one is gonna betray him. And he says that the son of man will go in verse 21, the son of man, excuse me, the son of man will, do, will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man for it would be better for him not to have been born. Judas would betray Jesus, but it was just as it had been written. What was happening to Jesus was not happening to him hap haphazardly. Jesus was in control. It was just as it had been written throughout scripture. It tells us that these things were going to happen. It wasn't that he lost control. It was that he was following. That he was doing exactly what a sovereign and loving father had put out before him. As Judas betrays him. Again, it's not spiraling out of control. It just further confirms that he's in control. Jesus establishes the new covenant after that as the Passover meal. They share this meal on the eve of the crucifixion. And for centuries, this has been a celebration, this meal, this the celebration of God's covenant that he made with the Israelites as he rescued them from Egyptian captivity. Now, Christ declares that this symbolic meal that goes years, thousands of years back into the story of the Israelites, this symbolic meal has a new symbol and that the center of the symbol is him, that his body would be torn and that would be the bread that we would eat and his blood would be poured out and that would be the wine that is drank. And it's symbolic of their rescue, not from Egyptian captivity, but from captivity to sin as he establishes the new covenant and foretells of his death and what it's going to do. He's not out of control. He's completely in control. And then at Gethsemane in the greatest agony that one could imagine in the full weight of what's laid, was what's before him is laid on his shoulders. Jesus faithfully submits to the father's will. And with Judas, when he leads the guards again into the, in, into the garden where Jesus has been, where Jesus has just finished praying, not my will, but yours be done. And they came with clubs and swords. It wasn't fear and force that takes Jesus out of the garden. Jesus gave himself over. To those guards. He laid his life down. No one took it from him. And this was to fulfill scripture just as it had been written. Again, Pastor J.C. Ryle says this, that the armed men whom Judas brought to lay hands on Jesus were unconscious instruments in carrying out God's purpose into effect. The reality is that Jesus was not surprised he knows every detail of what laid before him from, from Gethsemane to Calvary. And it was to fulfill all the prophecies and the promises that were made throughout scripture. 
and the wrath of his enemies and the rejection by his own people being condemned by the assembly. All of these things were foreknown and foretold and all would take place to work out God's great design to provide atonement for the sins of the world. And it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, that Jesus joyfully walked this road to rescue us. He joyfully embraced the cross to rescue us. And such confidence, as J.C. Ryle continues, such confidence in God's will that Jesus displayed inspires us to trust him even when the road of life may be difficult and painful, even when it may bring death, because we know that God is in control. And that brings us lastly to What's there, the the last point for us is that Jesus has graciously and lovingly extended an invitation to restoration and relationship to you and I. As we wrap up, it would be, we would do well to be reminded that Christ's grace and mercy for sinners, his grace and mercy was for sinners who abandoned and betrayed and rejected him, just like you and I. You know, many of us will start new habits, right? You'll, you'll decide that you're gonna do something and, and I, I like to diet habits are my favorite because I've done this plenty of times, right? I decide I'm gonna start a new diet and I've, I swear off any of those substances that have gotten me to the point where I need to be in a diet, right? And so like, I'm never ever going to put those things in my body again. I mean, I swear them off. It's like Monday morning, something clicked from Sunday night to Monday morning. I will never eat another Oreo again. And by lunch, I'm already feeling tempted. By the time I get home, before Rebecca gets home from work, I'm probably already devoured a whole, a whole thing of Oreos. Right? We have these moments where we think that we swear it all off and we're never gonna do it again. We're never gonna mess up again. The reality is that all 11 of these 12, they said that they would never mess up. They were never gonna abandon him. And all of them did. Every one of them did. 11 of the 12 of those that declared that they would abandon no matter what, they all did. And all of them ran. It's a good reminder that this morning that, that no matter how far or how great our sin, how, how far we run from Christ, how miserably fa- we fail, how, how, far, how far away we, we, we are faithful, how faithless we are in our decoration of faithfulness that no matter how faithless we are, Christ is ever faithful. That though our sin is great, that his mercy is more. We also know that scripture tells us, and from church history, it tells us that all, that 11 of these 12 disciples, minus Judas, are restored into that relationship with Christ. And 11 of those 12 would go on to spread the gospel and many of them would give their lives for him, but all of them would proclaim the gospel minus Judas because they returned to him. One didn't, he ran and he never came back. And I wonder sometimes, along with many others, I'm sure, I wonder what would have happened if Judas would have come back. I wonder if Jesus would have welcomed him the same way he welcomed the others. And I I have to believe that his sin was not too great either. That Jesus would have restored him the same way that he'd restored these others that had run away and abandoned him. 
But one of the things that's most incredible from what we said a second ago, that when he was risen, he would go to Galilee, he would meet them there. And then Peter later on in multiple times, it tells us, it tells us that Jesus identifies Peter specifically. And just later on, it says that Jesus meets Peter and kind of recreates the same scene that we find in the early parts of the, of the gospels where Jesus calls Peter to himself to be one of the disciples. He recreates that scene in the end of John chapter 21, where he has this great haul of fish as Peter's gone back to fishing. He pulls in this great number of fish and he realizes that it's Jesus on the shore. He jumps out and goes and spends time with Jesus and Jesus restores him. The, what, I, what I want us to see as we finish this up this morning is that Jesus is the one that initiates it. For the disciples, when he says, I'm gonna go to Galilee, you're gonna leave me, but I'm gonna go to Galilee. I'm gonna go before you. And he's anticipating that they're gonna meet him there because he was the one that took the first step. And with Peter, Jesus is the one that took the first step. And this morning, no matter where you've been, no matter how faithless you've been, Jesus remains faithful and he's taking the first step towards you to say, I want you to be restored in relationship with me. It doesn't matter how far you've gone away. It doesn't matter what you've done. No, you, none, of us, none of us could have done more than these guys did in the moments of Christ's greatest agony. They truly left him alone. And he comes back and says, I want you to be restored in relationship. And he offers us, you and I, the same restoration. The proper response for us this morning is to come back the way that Peter did. To, in repentance, come back to the Lord and say, God, I, I've failed you in large and in small ways. And I ask for your forgiveness and to be restored in that relationship with you that was broken by sin. The proper response for all of us, no matter what, if it's, you've never trusted Christ for salvation, the proper response this morning is Jesus extending the invitation to you this morning, inviting you back into, inviting you into relationship with him through repentance, by his grace, through faith, to be restored to the, the creator. And secondly, maybe it's you've wandered away, you've walked away, you've given up. And he's inviting you back into that relationship. And maybe tears don't fill your eyes the way that they did Peter's, or maybe they do, but regardless, through repentance, he brings us back into that relationship. Proper response is to return to Peter and then to think about Mary in the beginning to give everything the way that Mary gave. To realize in response to the great grace of Jesus, to, to understanding the full weight of our sin and just how great Christ's grace is to re restore us, that we give everything, no matter what the cost. I don't know if, where you are this morning, but I, I would anticipate that some in the room are on one side or the other of that. Or maybe, you have, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus and today's the day where you hear his invitation to trust him. Maybe it's that you did at some point in your past, but you know that you've abandoned or rejected or disowned the same way that the disciples did and you need to return. And I want you to hear Christ's invitation this morning to say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. And I'm gonna pray for us, and this morning as we pack up, if, if that's where you are, as we finish up this morning, I, packing up is not more important than me having a conversation with you about what that looks like for that restoration to happen. 
So I'd love to have that conversation with you. I'll be in the, in the front as we wrap up this morning to have that conversation if that's where you are. But I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna invite the, the ushers to come up after I pray and then um, we'll talk through a couple things in just a moment. Jesus, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to, to sing songs in celebration of your grace, to be reminded that you, you have rescued us, that you are great and that your love is greater than we deserve, that your mercy extends far beyond our greatest failures. And that in your grace, you welcome us back into relationship with you. You restore us where we have fallen and, and, and failed and broken relationship with you. I pray, Father, this morning, if on one side or the other, if it's to begin a relationship with you, that, that, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and, Father, courage to respond to your invitation to come and to trust you. And if it's the other side where we just know we've wandered away and we've abandoned or rejected, that we would hear your, your, your call to come and respond, you moving forward to us first, and that we would respond as Peter did in coming to you and respond as Mary did in giving you our all because you are the only one worthy. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name we pray, amen. We're so glad you listened in on our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. We would love for you to share our content with the people in your life. Remember to hit the subscribe button so you never miss a sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're so thankful for you listeners. See you next time.